This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Imagine living in one of the happiest countries in the world, where happiness is a government policy. It's seen as more important than the budget bottom line. Sounds like a fairy tale. Sounds amazing. Where is this country? Because it actually exists. But also, why are so many young people trying to get out? We're going to take you soon to a place known as the Hermit Kingdom. We'll tell you why there's been this massive brain drain happening. Later, the changing face of history classes, why students want a fresh perspective when we're looking at our past. First, though, a trigger warning. We're about to talk about body image and disorders for the next little bit. Hack. I remember having this constant sense of, am I not doing enough? Am I not enough? On Triple J. You know, a lot of jokes are made about gym junkies who love to check themselves out while working out. You know who I'm talking about. Maybe it's you that I'm talking about. They can't stop focusing on the mirror. They're obsessed with bulking, cutting, calorie counting. Your working out is healthy. It improves us physically. It improves us mentally. But for some people, it can consume their lives. And for young guys in particular, it can develop into something really serious called muscle dysmorphia. Look, it's not something that gets talked about a lot. We've come a long way when it comes to discussing eating disorders like anorexia, but muscle dysmorphia is still really misunderstood. It's under-researched. In a bit, we're going to speak with someone who is looking into it, who's been doing the studies. But first, our Tassie reporter April McLennan's been chatting with some people who've experienced it. I've just walked into the gym here in Launceston and the gym guys and girlies are just finishing up what looks to be a pretty intense workout. They're super sweaty. And that guy you can hear yelling, that's Nathan Geard. He's the owner of the gym. In high school, one of the reasons I got into exercise was probably because I had low self-confidence. But interesting to see, obviously, over the years of being inside the fitness industry, seeing like a whole bunch of different things. It used to be called bigorexia. I don't know if that's a term you've heard of, but it was basically where people never thought they were big enough or muscular enough or ripped enough. We're talking about muscle dysmorphia. It's when a person feels they're not big enough or lean enough, despite often being substantially more muscular than the average person. And people with this condition are often super strict when it comes to exercising and their diet. It's something Nathan actually went through when he was in high school. Like, I'd be very mindful of what foods I'd eat and consume. I'd be reluctant to go to certain restaurants and things like that and enjoy life with my friends and family and things like that. Muscle dysmorphia can affect anyone, but it's more common with young guys. And some people who have this condition go on to use steroids. Being in the traditional old school gym that I was in the past, you'd see a whole bunch of different guys, you know, they'd go away and they'd come back and they'd be five, ten kilos heavier full of muscle and things like that and they've just done a course of um, exogenous hormones like steroids and things like that. Research shows that muscle dysmorphia can lead to anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide, yet there's not been a single treatment plan ever developed for it. Um, When you look at things like anorexia nervosa, there's thousands of treatment plans. So if you were to go to the doctor and say, hey, I think I've got muscle dysmorphia, they actually don't have a set way to treat you because that's never been developed. What do you think about that? I guess my first thing would be why. Like the question would be why. And I think um, if it is as prevalent as what obviously it's coming to light, that's a scary thought. After meeting Nathan, I wanted to know more. So I jumped online and the very first video that came up was from this 22-year-old guy called Hamish James. I've been maintaining single-digit body fat for over a year. But why? Being lean is addictive. That's because once you reach a certain level, 
Hamish only took up bodybuilding about eight months ago, but he's already been in three comps and won the under 21 national title. But unfortunately, Hamish has now developed muscle dysmorphia. You never feel big enough, you never feel good enough. Like, I was in the best physical condition that I have ever been in a few weeks ago, but I didn't feel like I was enough. And that's not a healthy mindset to put yourself in. If you don't mind me asking, what toll has this had on your mental health? Um, I went from being a very outgoing social person, hanging out with people, just being a normal 18, 19 year old kid, to someone that would just choose not to go out because it could affect my training, affect my lifestyle. And you know, I pushed a lot of people away, pushed a lot of friends away, and I became very isolated. I achieved what I wanted, but do I feel a little bit empty as a result? For sure. Australia is actually running its first ever clinical trial for muscle dysmorphia. And the trial's actually been based off treatments used to help adults with eating disorders. And while more research is being done to help young people going through this, Hamish suggests just reaching out to your mates or someone you trust. A lot of my friends don't want to go train three hours a day, but they're still your friends at the end of the day, they still care about you. And you can have this mindset that, oh, they won't get it. Oh, they, they'll think I'm a weirdo, but people will care about you. They're still there for you, no matter what. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story. We're getting lots of messages through on the text line. Let's find out a bit more about muscle dysmorphia. Jordan Martinstein is a psychologist and PhD researcher with the Inside Out Institute, and he's looking into this condition. He's with us now. G'day, Jordan. Thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks for inviting me, Dave. Pleasure to be here. We know with eating disorders, there's been you know a lot of research into how prevalent they are. I guess the figures with that as well are probably a bit contentious, but do we know how many people suffer muscle dysmorphia? Yeah, so unfortunately, there's not a lot of good prevalence data in adults with muscle dysmorphia. There is one study that we do go off. It was published a few years ago, and that was on 5,000 adolescents in Australia. And they found that it affected almost 2% of people in that sample. And so it might not sound like a lot, but if you think about a high school with 1,000 students across all years, that's almost 20 people who are probably living with muscle dysmorphia. Yeah, it's a lot more than what a lot of people would probably think. I mean, we've got some questions coming through on the text line about, you know, isn't this just body dysmorphia? Why is it important to differentiate it from body dysmorphia? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, I mean, muscle dysmorphia, we think of it as a subtype of body dysmorphia. So body dysmorphia can be feeling self-conscious about anything. It could be about your nose or the shape of your face. Muscle dysmorphia is really applied to not having enough muscularity or leanness as well. So it's a, it's a very specific type of body dysmorphia. I imagine it can impact anyone, right? But it does seem that young men are mostly affected. Is that fair to say? Yeah, we, we don't have great uh, data on, on the gender distribution, but from our estimates, it's probably at least 80% of people affected would be males. So it's kind of the opposite of what we see in anorexia. Anorexia affects primarily females, Muscle dysmorphia tends to affect primarily males. We do have someone on the text line saying, as a female personal trainer, I went through this. I used to weigh everything I ate, never thought I was fit enough. You know, pics show that, you know, I had a six pack and was ripped. That was from Beck. How do the symptoms present themselves, Jordan? Like, how do you know if you might be going through this or if a loved one might be going through this? Because with other eating disorders, maybe it's a bit easier to see or maybe it's not. But with muscle dysmorphia, I imagine it's pretty easy to mask. 
Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And I think from the outside, it can be very difficult to judge whether someone does have muscle dysmorphia just based on their body alone. But there are a number of signs that we look for as psychologists. One is how preoccupied is this person with the idea that they don't have enough muscularity or leanness. And so if you notice them constantly checking in the mirror or scrutinizing their body or potentially asking for reassurance about that, their size, that's often a really big one. We often see people with this disorder also very self-conscious about showing their body in public. Something as simple as, you know, going to the beach or pool, something that we take for granted might be incredibly stressful for someone with this disorder. And then another really good indicator as well is steroid use. It's not a one-to-one. Not everyone who has muscle dysmorphia takes steroids, but that's often a yellow flag that someone might have muscle dysmorphia as well. Okay. So there's some of the things that people might be looking out for. How bad does it get? Like in the worst cases, what kind of things are we seeing? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it, it can be really debilitating. I've seen it firsthand from running this clinical trial that we're working on now. Um, one of the people in the study was weighing 130 kilos. Um, he was training almost three hours every day. He was eating 6,000 calories a day and he actually broke his bowel um, from all of the stress that he was going under. He was taking wow. every type of steroid under the sun and he was actually hospitalized from it. He lost 45 kilos and he was in a pretty bad shape. And so I think a lot of people from the outside um, often don't think that this is a very serious thing, but having seen it firsthand, people who have muscle dysmorphia can be in, in a really bad shape, unfortunately. Got someone on the text line. Someone says, I'm Josh, I'm 24 years old. I've been on and off steroids for three years for this reason. Um, you know, I was 110 kilos, told by everyone that I'm huge, but I've never felt big enough. I, you know, never really thought about the fact that I could have this going on. Yeah. So look, we're going to point people into uh, the right channels in a bit. You know, you can call... Uh, places like the Butterfly Foundation. If you're wanting more information on this, 1-800-ED-HOPE. There's a chat option there as well. Lifeline is also there, of course, 13 11 14. You are listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with researcher Jordan Martinstein about muscle dysmorphia and how it impacts a, a lot of people in Australia, a lot of young people. Maybe it's something you've heard about. Maybe it's not something you've heard about. Jordan, you've done a study into this, talking to people around the world impacted by muscle dysmorphia. Also, as we heard from April, there's a clinical trial getting underway. What's it looking at? How's that all playing out? Yeah, so in terms of the clinical trial, so I guess just taking a step back. So we first learned about muscle dysmorphia all the way back in 1993. So that's 30 years ago. And in that 30-year period, there hasn't been a single treatment study of this kind ever done. And a lot of that is just lack of funding, but also difficulties recruiting people with muscle dysmorphia who want to participate in, in a treatment study like this. And so we've designed an eight-week program. It was designed by a team of psychologists and psychiatrists. And it's a program of something called CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. It's a psychological intervention. And so people who sign up for the study... They undergo that eight-week program of, of CBT and we measure their symptoms of muscle dysmorphia before, directly after finishing, and then also at a three-month follow-up period as well. And so we're really hoping that this can give some relief to people who have this disorder and also that the relief is sustained at a follow-up period in the future, which is what really matters. Looking forward to hearing how that goes, what the findings are. Do you find it weird that there's really not been much research into this? Because when you look into it, it's pretty surprising the lack of information out there. Yeah, there, there isn't a lot. Um, we talked about, you know, I think we've talked about anorexia a little bit before, but there's uh, or, or there's more than 10,000 studies published on anorexia from our estimates and with muscle dysmorphia, there's only a few hundred. So there is a very big discrepancy in how much research there is compared to eating disorders. And 
a lot of that just comes down to the fact that until very recently, people didn't take this disorder seriously, both the general public, but also clinicians. It just wasn't something across their radar and it wasn't something that we thought was particularly serious. But the research is coming out now and showing that if you have muscle dysmorphia, it can be pretty bad. And so we're now seeing more research and funding come into this space, which is a really good thing. And what is your research showing about who is most at risk of developing muscle dysmorphia? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's a few things that have come up in our studies. One is low self-esteem is a really big predictor of someone going on to develop muscle dysmorphia. And some other factors are being bullied as an adolescent, particularly based on your body shape. And then another one is being a victim of um, domestic violence or even assault or even witnessing it. And so you can imagine in those situations, people can feel pretty hopeless. They can feel like there's, there's not much that they can do. And so getting big, getting strong, getting muscular, it's often a protective response. So people don't have to go through that pain again. Look, it's fascinating research that you're doing. We definitely want to check in again to see how it's all going. And, you know, we're hearing from people on the text line now who are saying, yeah, you know, I've been through this or I know someone who has. It's a really important study. Jordan Martinstein from the Inside Out Institute, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Cool. Thanks for having me, Dave. And remember, if this has brought up anything for you, if you want to uh, get a bit more info, you want some help, the Butterfly Foundation is there, one 800 334 Lifeline as well, 13 11 14. Hack. Some people claim that this country is the happiest in the world. On Triple J. So what about the happiest country in the world? What do you, what do you think of when I say that? The Kingdom of Bhutan is right up there, apparently. I don't know if you know much about Bhutan, but basically it's a country wedged between China and India. People often say it is one of the happiest countries in the world, and it's really resisted technological and cultural influences. Foreigners weren't even allowed to get into the country until the 1970s, and Bhutan was the last country in the world to get TV and internet. But despite all the really lovely things about this country, a lot of young people are doing everything they can to get out. They're coming to Australia. Why is that? The ABC's South Asia correspondent, Avani Dias, has been to Bhutan to find out. She's had some pretty rare access because it is hard to get in. She's with us now. G'day, Av. So good to have you back on Hack. Hey, Dave. So, Av, you've been travelling around Bhutan. For most of us who don't know much about it, what's it like? So Dave, a lot of people listening may have heard about Bhutan as the happiest nation on earth. And that's because the government introduced this policy where it actually measures gross domestic happiness instead of gross domestic product. And it sounds quite cool, right? So policies are created by the government, which are meant to keep people's happiness in mind instead of what gains profit and money like in other countries. But when I arrived there, I found a different country to what is supposedly meant to be the happiest place. Really hard to get into Bhutan's borders. As a tourist, if you want to get in, you have to pay 200 US dollars every single day that you're there. And they have this policy where they create sustainable tourism. They don't want it to become like Nepal, which is nearby and has heaps of tourists and backpackers or somewhere like Bali. They're trying to really limit the amount of people coming, even though it is such a beautiful place naturally, Dave. So it's really Uh, hard for tourists to get there. How did you manage to get in? 
So I had to apply as a journalist and I managed to get in eventually by convincing uh, the government to let me in because an Australian minister, Tim Watts, was actually visiting the country. So they said, okay, but it took a really long time for them to approve my visa. And then actually landing in the country is pretty scary. Um, I'm not the best flyer, I must admit, (laughs) but it's one of the world's most dangerous airports to land in as well. And as you said, this country was the last in the world to get the internet and TV. So it's had this really big isolationist policy. It's been called the Hermit Kingdom. So when I got there, I was speaking to so many young people on the ground and they've said that things like this this sort of isolation of the country, uh, the lack of development has meant they're really struggling without opportunities. So what, what did the young people tell you about why they're choosing to leave? So it was so weird, Dave, because when I was walking around the capital city, Thimphu, like just to give you an indication of what it's like, there's beautiful mountains surrounding it. There's a river flowing through it. It's absolutely stunning, but it felt a bit like a ghost town. And everywhere I was walking and everyone I was speaking to, either they wanted to go to Australia, they had already applied or they knew someone who who is already on their way. And that kind of gives you an indication of just how desperate people are to get out and they specifically want to get to Australia. I spoke to one young writer. He's um, under under 30. He's lived in Bhutan his whole life. He does a lot of comedy and, and writes songs. And he said that it just feels like there's no opportunities. There's, there's not enough work, firstly, but then even if you do get a university degree, even if you do finish school, people feel like they just have no future in this country. And it was kind of depressing actually and you know it's funny to compare it to that that idea of the happiest nation of earth on earth but when you speak to people on the ground they're saying I don't know what I'm going to do next. And the other crazy part about this is it's not just uh, unemployed people it's also people who've had an education who've gone to uni um, people working in the public service doctors People are leaving in such high numbers and now it's led to a shortage in those industries. So the Bhutanese government is really dealing with a challenging situation. Yeah, I mean, and that kind of issue of having a brain drain with lots of highly skilled young people leaving is something we've seen in obviously a lot of war-torn countries, places like Syria, Ukraine. So there's a lot of pressure on the young people who stay, right? Did you end up speaking to some uh, young Bhutanese people who had decided they didn't want to go overseas? they wanted to stay? Yeah, and I spoke to one one young influencer. Her name's Denka, and she, she was really cool. She's actually promoting travel in Bhutan because it is so stunning, right? It's like amazing Himalayan mountains. And uh, she actually has promoted it so much that she went hiking in Bhutan with Will Smith, so that kind of <laughs> gives you an indication of how popular she is. Um, and Bhutan is also a kingdom, so it's been ruled by a monarchy for several years. The king is so popular. Everywhere you look, his face is on billboards. People see him as good looking and really good at diplomacy and that's really instilled a lot of pride in the country. So people like Denka are saying, look, I'm going to stay, I'm going to try my best to promote this country. But she says she understands why so many people want to leave. But another interesting part about it, Dave, is that a big reason why Bhutan has struggled to develop is because it's stuck between China and India. And they're two massive superpowers which are feuding at the moment. India, like Australia, is feeling concerned about China's 
kind of dominance in the Asia Pacific region. And so Bhutan has big links to India. It really relies on India economically. So it can't trade with China. You know, there are people on the border on these villages who are saying we want to do more with China, but we can't. Travel agencies are telling me we want more Chinese travellers, but the government's really resistant. And so there's this big push now to work more with China, but that's going to concern countries like Australia and India who want Bhutan on their side. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with ABC South Asia correspondent Avani Dias about her recent trip to Bhutan, where a lot of young people there are trying to get out and come to Australia. There's this huge proportion of Bhutanese people who want to make a new life in Australia. I've, that's the other question I've got. Why Australia? Like, it, it's, it just seems like a lot of these young people are very specifically wanting to come here. Did they give you any reasons why? Well, it's it's similar to what we've heard a lot about Australia. People feel like there are opportunities there. And, you know, these these doctors and these, these public servants, they're actually quitting their jobs, voluntarily resigning and taking up jobs like being a um, cleaner or doing blue-collar work in Australia. So they're taking these massive demotions. But now there's become such a big Bhutanese population in Australia. Perth actually has the largest Bhutanese population outside of Bhutan. Wow. So it's massively growing. So, you know, once that kind of ball starts rolling, a lot more people want to start going there. And it's really interesting because, weirdly, uh, Bhutan's government, the majority of the government was actually educated in Australia. So people are really worried that once these people leave, they're not going to come back. And I spoke to the the Prime Minister of Bhutan, Dave. He was pretty frank with me. He actually told me, yeah, this is really concerning. We are worried about it. We do realise we need to give people opportunities. But he said they do feel stuck in between those two feuding superpowers. But he also tried to convince me that people are going to come back. He said they're going to go to Australia They'll come back eventually. It'll be fine. The Australian Minister, Tim Watts, he's the Deputy Foreign Minister, he said the same thing. But I did a lot of research into this and I couldn't find any statistics which actually show how many Bhutanese people are getting an education than taking those skills from Australia and going back to Bhutan. Yeah, it's so interesting, a relationship that Australia has, such a close relationship with another country that many Australians may not have heard much about at all. So it's great to get a bit of an insight and trust Avani Dias to go straight to the Prime Minister of Bhutan when she wants some answers. <laughs> Av, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Oh, thanks, Dave. And if you do want to read more about this, Avani's done a big write-up. You can find it on ABC News. You've got messages coming through. People who've been to Bhutan, someone says, I went for a uni trip. It's gorgeous. The people are so extremely kind and I'd love to go back. Hack. Kids should understand how we became such a free, egalitarian, wealthy nation. On Triple J. What kind of stuff really stuck with you from high school history lessons? Maybe you were into ancient Egypt or loved hearing about the Cold War. In Australia, there's always been a bit of a military focus. You know, the Anzacs, the Gallipoli campaign, for example, also stuff like Federation. There's some interesting research out this week, though, that shows students aren't engaging a lot with these topics. Their interests are changing. So what do students want to learn about? And could these changes change the way we teach history in schools, or should it? Dr Kay Carroll is the lead author of the research. She's a senior lecturer of education at Western Sydney University, and she joins me now. G'day, Kay. Thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here. I don't think it's a surprise, really, that heaps of students have said they're not into history classes. (laughs) But I guess what's changed here? What's your study found that is a bit surprising? 
Look, uh, I, I understand, but uh, for 60% of the students, they are really engaged in uh, history. If it's taught in the right way, if they are hearing stories and like we surveyed uh, 678 students around Australia. So, you know, people who are 12 years of age, right up to 18 year olds and said, what do you find really engaging about history? What do you remember? What do you want to learn about? And uh, we found that they are quite interested in thinking about topical issues, what's happening in their world, global events. They want to know stories around inclusion and having voice. And so clearly they're interested in, you know, Indigenous and First Nations peoples. They want to understand, you know, what someone's story is and, and you know, how that makes up Australia today and is reflected in their world. So what were the subjects that you found that students really weren't engaging as much with these days that they were finding pretty boring? Well, I, I guess if you think about it, where we are in 2023, young people, they want to hear about contemporary other students, what's happening in the world. They're not so engaged with what happened way back in 1901 with stories of federation um, that didn't really include women at the time, nor did it include our first peoples. So they want to hear stories that reflect who they are today. And they want to be understanding, you know, why a particular attitude or value has happened in Australia and they want to have voice and agency. I guess there are going to be people listening going, yeah, but history's history. Like, it happened, we've got to learn about those things. Is it more, though, about students wanting to be, like you say, engaged and have a more critical discussion, not just believing everything they read but looking at a whole bunch of different material? Yes, they definitely want to do their own research. They want to actually look at a primary source, so a photograph or a radio broadcast or some text, or they want to hear someone's personal autobiography. They want to actually understand the evidence and not be given, you know, here are the facts or a linear view of history. They want to challenge, they want to debate, they want to question, they want to know why is this important to know and how can I use it for my own identity or my own ideas and how can I understand other people. You also surveyed teachers, right? What did they say? We surveyed 39 primary and secondary teachers around Australia and they use historical inquiries. So they are using active history lessons where they're getting students to look at a whole range of sources, including modern sources, uh, social media sources as well, and actually getting them to explore, you know, whose voice is being spoken about, whose voice is admitted here, what position are they taking up, what bias might be here, uh, are there other, you know, deductions we can make, you know, what is this story really about? So 65% of our teachers are actually engaged in this work. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking to Dr Kay Carroll from Western Sydney Uni about uh, this research into students and their interests, what they're engaging with in history classes. Uh, Dr Carroll, I'm wondering, do you think that a lot of this change in terms of what is hitting with students, what's not, has something to do with the changing makeup of Australian society? Like a lot of people now come from maybe migrant backgrounds post-World War II and don't connect with stuff that happened before the Second World War in Australia. Definitely. Uh, students today, you know, they live in an inclusive, multicultural, diverse, really linguistically rich. So lots of different languages are spoken and they want to understand that background and that sort of story. And that continues 
to evolve. So it's not just from World War II onwards, it's actually happening today. They want to understand issues from the 80s, even right into the 2000s and, and really up to yesterday. Uh, and because that reflects who they are and it means that they have a particular identity as well in Australia. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, I was lucky enough to have a history teacher in high school that was enthusiastic and assist of our little group to really involve our classes in what we were learning. Yeah, important to have great engaged teachers as well, obviously. Somebody else, Dane, says, I really didn't like hearing the one-sided versions of history. Um, you know, the white male perspective. I, di- I didn't like it. That was Dane's point of view. Another person says, when we look at current society, I don't see how we can still claim to be an egalitarian nation. It feels dated. And somebody else says, when I was in high school, history was always the loosest class because nobody paid much attention or did much work. I reckon a few people can relate to that. Uh, did Did the results surprise you, Dr Carroll? I think the results show uh, exactly that young people, they want to learn about history from the side, history from below. They want to hear the stories and they want to understand ordinary people and people like themselves and, you know, what sort of uh, agency they can bring to, to their world. So I don't think it's that surprising and I'm not surprised to hear that teachers are doing amazing things um, and actually, you know, giving them, you know, really rich experiences, research opportunities to investigate uh, because that's good history teaching and we have plenty of those great teachers out there. Well, hey, we appreciate your insight into this. It is, it's good to know what is uh, engaging students, what's not. Dr Kay Carroll from Western Sydney Uni, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dave. And we've got someone on the text line saying, I'm a 24-year-old archaeologist and I couldn't think of anything more boring than Australian colonial history when I was in school. I'm now learning about First Nations people, Indigenous culture. It's one of the most rewarding and interesting opportunities in my life. So lots of messages through on that one. Also quite a few messages on the muscle dysmorphia story we had before. Someone says, yeah, my partner uses steroids, eats a lot to try and be as big as possible, despite me saying I thought he was perfect before. I never thought about it being a disorder, but hearing that story is super worrying, as I'm sure he is suffering. Another person says, you know, as a person uh, who had anorexia, muscle dysmorphia can be misconceived as recovery. A lot of people with eating disorders turn to the gym rather than getting healthy. And someone else says, I really think online dating relates to this. We feel the need to have a perfect body for perfect pictures on social media or our online dating profiles. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.